Sports Radio Network. Broadcasting from coast to coast. City to city, coast to coast. It's time for the Ryan Hickey Show on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. If it's happening in sports, it's being talked about right here. And here's your host, Ryan Hickey. Good Thursday morning. Welcome on in to the Ryan Hickey Show. Where else? But the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. A very, very busy Thursday morning. We got loaded for you right here. Let's not waste any time. Thanks so much for making us a part of your Thursday. And as always, we're coming to you live from the Big Italy Pizzeria Studios. Whether it's great pizza, hot heroes, and phenomenal dinners, make sure to check out BigItalyPizza.com to find a location near you. So we got some big news late last night on the Baker Mayfield front. And it comes with a team that is interested in pursuing his services. And no, it's not the Panthers. Now the latest report from Justina Anderson is the Seahawks. And my reaction to this report is this. As soon as 2021 ended, if you go back to the end of last season, I said the Seahawks should have moved on from Pete Carroll. Whether you were firing him whether you were letting him go, whether you were forcing him into retirement, maybe you know moving him into a different position within the organization. You have too much respect for Pete Cow to fire him, and you like what he's brought to your organization last you know, decade. However you want to dress it up, however you want to go about presenting it publicly, the goal should have been, if you're the Seahawks, with Russell Wilson inevitably on his way out, which you know a month or so later after the season ended, he was. You need to start fresh with a brand new head coach. The game has passed Pete Carroll by, and this is the perfect opportunity with, again, Russell Wilson on his way out to hit the reset button and bring some youth to the team, starting a new era in Seattle. But instead, they did not do that. They have stood by Pete Carroll, and now he is ruining the future of the Seattle Seahawks. Because you go back to last night, Josina Anderson, great CBS Sports NFL insider. She was reporting that not only do the Seahawks have a high level of interest in acquiring Baker Mayfield, they're also interested and open to the idea of giving Baker a contract extension since he's on the final year of his rookie deal. They are not only going to trade for him, they're also going to give him a contract extension. Before we get into that, let's just look at the motivations of who would want to make this move. This is a Pete Carroll-driven move 100%. This is all backed by Pete Carroll because he wants to win right now no matter what. It doesn't matter that he doesn't have the roster to do so. It doesn't matter that even, look, I like Baker, but how good is Baker going to be in Seattle? My hopes aren't very high. It doesn't matter that, you know, the, uh, the division is tough. Pete doesn't care. He's trying to win no matter what. And for me, the best thing for the Seahawks is to not win in 2022. Trying to win is the exact opposite of what Seattle should be trying to accomplish this season. They need to tank. They need to tank, lose as many games as possible, run Drew Locke out there, run Geno Smith out there, run both out there. I don't care. Either quarter that you have, neither of them are are any good. So you are going to lose a ton of games, whether it's Geno at quarterback, whether it's Drew Locke at quarterback, and that is perfectly A-OK. You got to find your next quarterback with Russell Wilson out the door. Well, the good news is if you're a Seahawks fan on paper, if you tank, 
you have a really good chance of getting Ohio State CJ Stroud, Alabama's Bryce Young, maybe another quarterback explodes as a Joe Burrow-esque rise or Mac Jones level rise in you know this upcoming season of college football and you can be in a position to draft him. To me, it doesn't matter who it is. You got to put yourself in a position to be able to draft a young quarterback within the top five picks in next year's draft to kind of get your franchise going and kind of give it a, a reboot. Give it a shot here to have, I don't say the Legion of Boom 2.0, but that kind of similar rise where you had the young quarterback, Russell Wilson, you had a good defense, and you kind of, you know, dominated the league for a few years up there in Seattle. You need a reboot. You need a reset. And to me, the best way to, for the Seahawks to get back on the winning ways is by taking a step back this year, losing as many games as possible, and getting that young franchise quarterback to build your team around and start taking it into the future. Because if you look at it on paper, this team is not very good. This team is in no position to uh, compete. So if you draft a young quarterback, at least you can have some building blocks there going forward. You have DK Metcalf, who's still a very young receiver. I do think an extension will get done between D, uh, DK and the Seahawks. So you have a young receiver there in DK Metcalf that can make the rookie quarterback's life a lot easier than most situations. And you could kind of take your team and hit the reset button and build your team through the offense, through the quarterback, which they have not done in Pete Carroll's time in Seattle. It's always been defensive running the football, even though you had a top five quarterback in Russell Wilson in town for so long, it was still not a quarterback-centric offense, quarterback-centric team. So I think losing, 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 I know rookie quarterbacks are no guarantee. We've seen way more flame out. We've seen way more flop than succeed. But for me, that is the best course of action for the Seahawks for to get back in the winning track, to get back to competing in the NFC, is by losing this year, taking a step back, tanking, and drafting a young quarterback and building around that young guy, hoping he could become the future next year and beyond. Not, not trading for Baker Mayfield and not giving him a contract extension. Because look, I'm a Baker fan. I am. I think he's been unfairly um, disparaged. I think his accomplishments have been minimized. I think he's a good quarterback. But I'll say this. Baker Mayfield does the Seahawks no good. This year, they are not a playoff team with Baker Mayfield. So you want to acquire Baker. You think, okay, we're going to make a run at the NFC in a weak NFC. Even though the NFC, the bottom of the NFC is very weak, you are still not a top seven team even a top 18 in the NFC if you have Baker Mayfield as your quarterback because the rest of the team is not very good. That is part of the issue here for Pete Carroll's logic, Pete Carroll's thinking, and trying to trade for Baker Mayfield. The team is not very good. Your offense line is very shaky and questionable. Sure, I know you drafted Kenneth Walker uh, in the latest NFL draft. The running back position for how much emphasis Pete Carroll puts on running the football and having a lot of success, I'm not holding my breath that this team is going to be a very successful team running the football. So the strength, the quote-unquote strength of the offense, how Pete Carroll wants to win games and operate moving the ball is not a strength of this team because they don't have a great running back, they don't have a great offensive line. Yes, you have Tyler Lockett and you have DK Metcalf. A great one-two punch receiver. Not much else. No tight end to write home about. And obviously the quarterback situation, even with Baker, will still be questionable at best. And the defense is not very good. They struggle getting after the quarterback. Jamal Adams is the most overrated and overpaid player in all the NFL. The linebacking court took a hit with the, with the uh, loss of Bobby Wagner. This team is nowhere near, nowhere near playoff contention. 
But yet here, Pete Carroll is trying to get this team to the playoffs. Thinking Baker Mayfield is the answer for Seattle. Like, if they trade for Baker, honestly, what are you saying Seattle's going to go? Like, for me, they're still in the 5-7 to seven win range. 7 and, what would that be? 7 and 10? 5 and 12? Like, somewhere in there? Like, this team is not very good. And again, as someone who is pro-Baker, who I, like, this call me crazy. I get it. I do think Baker Mayfield, if he's in the right situation, is still good enough to get you and win you a Super Bowl. I get I'm in the minority. I get that's crazy thinking. And I get I'm almost kind of giving Baker a backhanded comment in the sense that you need the perfect situation around him because he does. He needs a San Francisco 49ers-esque team where you're elite at running the ball, really good defense, great O-line, solid receivers, you know, great head coach. You need a lot to help Baker. Don't get me wrong. But I think at least he is good enough and he has played better than I think he gets credit for because this, uh, Cleveland was a mess before Kevin Savansky got there. He got the, big, uh, the Browns to the playoffs for the first time and won a playoff game for the first time in 26 years. He does not get, I think, the credit he deserves for some of the accomplishments he had with the Browns. But with that said, Baker Mayfield is no savior. Baker Mayfield is not going into Seattle and taking this pretty crappy team and turning them into a playoff team. Turning them into a team that can compete and, you know, and try to make a playoff spot. So why, if you were going to be stuck in the middle, why the hell would you opt to give up assets? Now, not a lot, right? Admittedly, you're not going to give up a ton to get Baker Mayfield. You're going to get him on the cheap for the most part. A fifth-round pick, sixth-round pick. The Browns aren't asking for a lot. It's more about the salary. But you are going to get Baker Mayfield relatively on the cheap, but you're still giving up assets to acquire a quarterback that does what for you? Get you maybe two or three extra wins. Gives you maybe a little extra hope in week eight that, oh, wow, maybe there's an outside shot and we can make a wild card run. This team is only going to get more stuck in the middle. And for me, your future is only going to get more ruined if you trade for Baker Mayfield and you're Seattle because he gets you nowhere closer to where you need to be going forward. This Seattle team is not very good. They are not a playoff team of Baker Mayfield on this roster. They're not going to be. In my opinion, a playoff team next two to three years because a lot of work to do. So lose as many games as you can. Keep all your draft picks. Lose, run Drew Locke out there. Run Geno Smith out there. Lose, 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 lose. And get a young quarterback next year. Get in that top five and draft your next franchise guy. For the first time in a decade, build your team around the quarterback. And the reason that's not happening, the reason why now Seattle's going to try to make a run at Baker Mayfield and try to, you know, hope for a miracle making the playoffs is because Pete Carroll is there. It's because Pete Carroll is still holding out hope that, oh, we're going to be competitive. We're going to be good. Pete Carroll's delusional. Pete Carroll's absolutely delusional if he is sitting here thinking Baker Mayfield is going to make this team a playoff team. Baker Mayfield is delusional. Uh, Pete Carroll is delusional if he thinks Baker Mayfield's going to be the answer quarterback in Seattle. He's not. So there's no reason to give up assets. There's no reason to make a big move to trade for a quarterback that gets you maybe two to three extra wins. That takes you out of that top five contention for the draft and takes you out of the running, even though you have two first-round picks, takes you out of the running for drafting what could be a franchise-changing quarterback. Pete Carroll is ruining the future of the Seahawks by trying to trade for Baker Mayfield and trying to give him a contract extension because, again, this team is not a playoff team to Baker Mayfield. This team has a lot of holes. You should embrace those holes. Lose as many games as possible this year. 
Tr- you know, get a top five pick. Draft Bryce Young. Draft C.J. Stroud. Draft another quarterback that explodes here on, on the uh, in this upcoming college football season. And start to build your identity. Start to build your team in an offensive-driven league for the first time in Pete Carroll's era. Start to build your team through the quarterback position. Pete Carroll's failed to do that. He's refused to do that. He still thinks that, for whatever reason, running the ball and playing good defense wins games. It does not. The game has passed him by, and this is the latest example of that. Trading for Baker Mayfield or trying to trade for Baker Mayfield is 100% a Pete Carroll move, and it's 100% the wrong move for Seattle because it's ruining their future. So I'm curious your thoughts here. Facebook, Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Twitter, WWSRN underscore radio or at Ryan Hickey Show on Twitter. Should the Seahawks trade for Baker Mayfield? Would that be a good move for Seattle? Should they, in Pete Carroll's mind, like he wants to do, compete? Are they a playoff team with the former Browns quarterback who did take Cleveland to the playoffs? Or are you with me? Tanking is the way to go in 2022. Lose, 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 lose. And get yourself a young quarterback that can change the trajectory of this franchise moving forward. Love to hear your thoughts again. Facebook, Worldwide Sports Ryan Network. Uh, we're on Twitter, at Ryan Hickey Show. And check us out on YouTube. Show is streaming live there, Worldwide Sports Radio Network. When we return, a lot of discussion, a lot of question marks around Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving and their futures in Brooklyn. There was one report put out there by Woj yesterday that if this is true and comes to fruition, Kevin Durant will go uh, will go down as one of the all-time worst decision makers in NBA history. We'll discuss what that is and why when we return. Listen to the Ryan Inky Show on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. It's the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show. Right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. And welcome back into the Ryan Hickey Show right here. We're us, the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. All right. Kevin Durant, as we know, is an all-time great player. But here's the thing. Kevin Durant is on the precipice right now of going down as one of the worst decision makers in NBA history if he ends up deciding to leave the Nets because of Kyrie. I mean, if he's hitching his wagons... To Kyrie Irving. You know what that is? It's career suicide when it comes to trying to win another title. And unfortunately, for whatever reason, that seems to be what Kevin Durant is doing. He is seemingly going all in with his buddy Kyrie Irving and not allowing logic to explain to him and show him the way when it's been so painfully obvious that Kyrie Irving is not, not the answer. But yesterday, we got a report from the great ESPN NBA insider, Adrian Wojnarowski, who is saying that the Nets are fearful, fearful, that Kevin Durant will ask for a trade if they don't re-sign Kyrie Irving to a brand new contract. Now, earlier in the week, you had Sham Sharani of The Athletic reporting that the Nets and Kyrie are at an impasse when it comes to contract uh, negotiations. So clearly, the Nets have paused, rightfully so, about giving Kyrie a long-term extension, giving him max money, or maybe even re-signing him at all. And now, according to Woj, there's a fear within the Nets organization that if they don't re-sign Kyrie, Kevin Durant can be uh, out the door just like Kyrie's out the door. Now look, talent-wise, 
As we know, Kevin Durant is one of the best players to ever play this game. He is talented. He is impossible to guard with his size, with his shot, which is, with his ability to hit the, you know, knock down shots from anywhere on the floor, mid-range assassin. He is tremendous. But the biggest thing holding Kevin Durant back in his career, it's not certain defenses. It's not injuries. It's not, you know, the 2-3 zone or Greg Popovich's defense. The biggest thing holding Kevin Durant back in his career is his decision-making. Because of stupid decisions like this. Hitching your wagons to Kyrie Irving. Like, let me ask you this. What is the benefit, honestly? If you are only in it to play with Kyrie, and if he leaves, you're out the door for your Kevin Durant. What has Kyrie Irving showed you in these three years in Brooklyn, the two years at least you've been on the court, that there is a benefit to playing with Kyrie? I mean, maybe I'm blind. Maybe I'm just not watching the game correctly. Maybe now this new media wave of Kevin Durant and Draymond Green doing the podcast and explaining how new media now is going to finally explain to the game because us in the media apparently don't know what we're watching, don't know what we're talking about. So maybe I just don't know what I'm talking about. But watching Kyrie Irving play basketball last even five years, but specifically Justin Brooker for the last three years, I don't see any upside. Kyrie Irving has not showed any upside as to why Kevin Durant should be able to trust and want to play with Kyrie and think you can win a title with this guy. Sure, Kyrie Irving is talented. When he is locked in, when he's engaged, when he's healthy, when he's on the court and clicking, he's a top 15 player in the NBA. His handles, his shot-making ability, we've seen him go for 60 points in a game this past year. He is tremendous. But the thing is, he's extremely, extremely unreliable. And if you're Kevin Durant and about to be 34 years old in September, the one thing you need in your career right now is reliability. It's the one thing Kyrie Irving cannot give you. For how great you are in Kevin Durant, you need assurances that the second best player on your team, that the guy who's supposed to be the quote-unquote 1A, the sidekick, the Robin to your Batman, you need assurances that that guy's going to be on the court consistently and performing at his best when you need him the most. If Kyrie Irving showed that in the three years at Brooklyn, okay, fine. I could see why Kyrie and Katie are package deal. But to basically have them be a package deal now in Brooklyn, where it's either both of them with the Nets or neither of them with the Nets, what is Kevin Durant like watching? What is he seeing in Kyrie Irving that makes it seem like, you know what? Yeah, I can't play without Kyrie. Like, someone please explain it to me. If you're listening on Facebook, write in the comment section, Worldwide Sports Network. If you're on Twitter listening, tweet me at Ryan Hickey Show. Where is the upside to playing with Kyrie Irving? If you are Kevin Durant, what is the benefit of having him by your side? Having him as your go-to guy as your, again, 1A next to you. Because I thought through all the three years of Kyrie Irving in Brooklyn, all of the other BS the Nets have had to gone through, Kevin Durant's had to go through, I thought the best opportunity, the best example for Kyrie Irving to show his worth, for Kyrie Irving to show why patience was a virtue and why the Nets made the right call and bring him to Brooklyn were these four games in the past postseason against the Boston Celtics. Right? As we know now, looking back, those four games, that sweep where the Celtics disposed of the Nets, by far, by far, the worst playoff series of Kevin Durant's career. He was locked down. He had trouble hitting shots. He was extremely inefficient. Couldn't get anything going. At times, just seemed to quit and give up. Credit to the Celtics. They really made life hell for Kevin Durant in those four games. But with that said, with that said, and you're Kevin Durant, you go to Brooklyn, 
right? Three years ago, you make that decision to go to the Nets, and you choose Kyrie Irving as your running mate in part because you realize, you know what? Kyrie Irving is a guy that is so talented that if I'm having an off night, he could pick me up. Well, that, that's why you have a 1A. That's why stars now want to play with other stars. Because they realize the pressure is off if you have someone else equally talented as you on the court. Right, that series, with Kevin Durant being locked down, should have been a series where Kyrie Irving steps up with all the attention and pressure on Kevin Durant. That was a perfect and golden opportunity for Kyrie Irving to step up, take the pressure off of KD, pick him up when he's down, and show basically why... All of the drama, all of the BS, all the questions and nonsense that comes with Kyrie Irving is worth it. He could have showed right there in that series why everything is worth it. And instead, he flopped. He disappeared. Sure, game one, I get it. 39 points. He was tremendous, flipping the bird to the Celtics fans, going back and forth. He could have done almost everything you could have asked for. Defensively, the last play of the game that eventually led to the uh, game-winning layup from Jason Tatum. Obviously, not what you want. Don't want to see that from Kyrie. Uh, Big-time mental lapse. But after game one, his big explosive 39-point performance, where he was viewed, for the most part, in a positive light, games two, three, and four, he hid in plain sight. For how prolific of a shooter he is, he struggled mightily, and that needed to be a series where he stepped up and played really well with Kevin Durant having the clamps put on him by the Celtics. Just 10 points in Game 2, shooting 4 of 13 from the field. Game 3 with your season on the line, right? No team has ever come back from a 3-0 deficit in the NBA playoffs. So you're down 0-2. Going home. Game 3 is the season. Right there, this is the game. Season on the line, 16 points, 6-17 shooting. Sure, he scored 20 points in Game 4. Obviously, didn't do much. Good Nets lost. That series right there, those four games, were Kyrie Irving's best opportunity to show KD... Show the Nets why they should continue to believe in them. Why they should continue to build the team around those two guys and not get impatient. Not start a question, hmm, is Kyrie Irving truly the guy? Is Kyrie Irving's nonsense truly worth it? Is the juice worth the squeeze with Kyrie? Because guess what? Since that playoff series has gone down, since now you hear the Nets talk, the Nets are realizing quickly, he ain't worth the squeeze. This is not worth putting up with all the distractions, all the negative media attention that we get that comes along and associated with Kyrie Irving, he's not worth it. He is absolutely not worth it. That is the correct conclusion to make it for the Nets. You should want nothing to do with Kyrie Irving this offseason. If he's on any of the the other 29 teams next year, I think that's a win for Brooklyn going forward. Because again, this was the perfect opportunity for Kyrie because guess what? There were no excuses. Everything benefited Kyrie, uh, Kyrie, Kyrie, Kyrie heading into this playoff series against Boston. He was healthy. He was, right, there's no injuries, there's no wear and tear in the body, he played 29 games, he was healthy. The vax was, uh, the vaccination status was not an issue, by that point the Nets cleared him, he's ready to go, basically the rules were lifted. So vaccination status was not an issue, health was not an issue, he's played enough to get into a rhythm, you can't say he was rusty going into the playoffs, he knew and was very familiar with the team he was going against, and the Celtics, they played him last year in the playoffs in round number one, disposed of them pretty quickly, and then, oh yeah, by the way, Kyrie being a teammate in Boston for two years, a lot of those guys, he knows their tendencies, he knows how to kind of, you know, what he, what areas he can exploit, what areas he cannot. And instead, with all the 
benefits going Kyrie's way that should have had him have a huge monster playoff series, he hit in plain sight. He stunk. He sucked. So even when he's on the court and healthy and engaged, he has not so far in the three years proven to be a reliable 1A player to take the load off of Kevin Durant to step up when Katie needs him the most. So again, I ask you, if you're Kevin Durant, what on earth are you doing trusting Kyrie Irving? Hitching your wagons to one of the most unreliable players in all sports. The most unreliable player in all sports. It makes no sense. It doesn't make any sense. That's why Kevin Durant, I think, is going to go down as one of the worst decision makers of NBA history. Going and having Woj say that there's a real fear of the Nets, that you're going to leave the team because they won't re-sign Kyrie Irving. What are you watching, man? Where's your evaluation process? What has Kyrie showed you that you believe and say, you know what? I can win a title with Kyrie. He's my guy. We're going to figure it out. We just need time. The three years overall, the two years when Katie has played and been healthy on the court, there is nothing that Kyrie has showed him that he is reliable, he could step up, and he could be there when, he, when he's needed most. I know what you're going to say before we, before we go any further. When it comes to the Nets, if you are a proponent of, Ky- of the Nets re-signing Kyrie Irving, and your big statement is what? Well, there's no more vaccination issues, so he'll be good to play next year. He'll be A-OK. You can't think that way because for the most part, there is always something with Kyrie Irving. There's always something. If it's not the vaccination status, it's injuries. If it's not injuries, it's the fact that he's not distra- uh, that he's distracted. If he's not distracted, it's the fact that there's something else bothering him and he has to, you know, go MIA for a few weeks to go to his sister's birthday party and go to other events. If he's not distracted, if he's not hurt, if he's not sitting out games because of vaccination status, he's throwing others under the bus. This has been a guy when, if you go back to his first year in Brooklyn, with Kevin Durant out, and you know... If you're Kyrie Irving, Kevin Durant is coming back next year. That first year book was not a year where the Nets were going to do really any damage. He's calling out the young guy saying, we need to be better. We need more talent on this team. He was the same guy who called out the young players in Boston and basically jettisoned himself from the team because he was critical of the players around him, didn't take any ownership. Everything is the problem around Kyrie. He is never the issue. It's always something else. Always another person. Always another situation, circumstance, whatever. There's always something with Kyrie Irving. So sure, the vaccination status for the most part, we think and really we hope, should not be an issue going forward. I can promise you something else is going to pop up. Something else is going to happen where Kyrie Irving, his attention is then taken away and he's either going to not be on the court or not be fully engaged when he's on the court. So if you're Kevin Durant, why? Why on earth? Are you going to throw away everything you built so far in Brooklyn? Which, sure, I get has not been a lot. But at least you are trying to build your own legacy. I give Kevin Durant uh, credit for trying. You left Golden State. You wanted to build something on your own. It's not easy to do. And I don't think quitting, pulling the ripcord because your pal and Kyrie Irving might not get re-signed is the, way, is the move to do it. You're Kevin Durant. Do you not think anyone else is going to want to play with you? Like, sure, if if Kyrie Irving opts out or he's traded, sure, 2021, this upcoming season, 2022-2023, it could be a rough one. They don't, they don't have salary cap room in order to make a big move. So it could be a little rough. But if you're looking at this time next year, 
where the Nets have salary cap space. Maybe Ben Simmons shows you something and they're just one player away. You really think a player like Bradley Beal? You really think a player like, I don't know, maybe Damian Lillard? Like, there's a lot of options. And we know in the NBA, contracts don't mean anything. So there's a lot of opportunities for Kevin Durant to find a running mate next year. Kevin Durant is a player people still want to, you know, play with. It's not Russell Westbrook where it's kind of like, you know, oh, stay away from me, this guy's toxic. Kevin Durant would still attract stars to Brooklyn. Patience is all you need. But instead, he is, for whatever reason, hitching his wagons and and being all in with Kyrie Irving, and it makes zero sense in the world why Katie would leave the Nets if Kyrie Irving isn't re-signed. And again, great player. But now I I fear that when it comes to Kevin Durant's legacy, we're going to say great player, horrible decision maker was his own worst enemy, and this report from Woj said the Nets are fearful that KD will force a trade and ask for a trade if Kyrie Irving isn't resigned is the latest example of it. So I'm curious your thoughts. Should the Nets re-sign Kyrie Irving? More importantly, should Kevin Durant want to leave Brooklyn if they don't re-sign Kyrie Irving? Should KD hitch his wagons to the Kyrie Irving runaway train? Moving forward, love to hear your thoughts. Again, Facebook Worldwide Sports Ryan Eric. You can tweet me on Twitter at Ryan Hickey Show. Ryan Hickey Show. And also, uh, we're on YouTube. Check us out. You can comment and watch the show live at Worldwide Sports Ryan Eric on the tube. When we return, a few quick hitters I want to bounce around, including the Colorado Avalanche scored what was a controversial goal in last night's game. Was it truly a controversy? We'll discuss when we return us into the Ryan Hickey Show on the Worldwide Sports Ryan Network. <laughs> Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show, right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Ryan Hickey Show, back with you on this Thursday morning. All right, a few different topics I want to hit on, so let's do a little off-season edition. Usually we save this segment for just the football season. We will bring a little off-season Quick hits back here for this specific show right here on this Thursday morning, the Ryan Hickey Show on the Worldwide Sports Ryan Eric. Let's start with the quote-unquote controversy in last night's game number four Avalanche uh, Lightning Series. There is no controversy on the, on the game-winning goal by Nazem Kadri. The goal counted. It absolutely should have counted. Anyone complaining, anyone crying, including John Cooper, tremendous Lightning head coach, who usually, for the most part, takes the high road, and usually I love the way he views the game and respects the play of other players on other teams. He, to me, and anyone complaining about oh, too many men in the ice last night, come off as losers. I get you're upset. I get you're emotional where you feel like that. this was the game. right? Down 2-1 at home. This was the make-or-break game in the series that will decide either you're back in the series and probably will win it up to, uh, if you tie the series at 2. If you lose, go down 3-1, it's over. So I think John Cooper, part of his emotions last night and complaining about the too many men in the ice call and seeing how the Lightning were robbed and, you know, he didn't want to criticize the officials and left the post-game press conference after one question because he didn't want to say anything that was going to get himself in trouble. I get you're emotional because you, you probably the finality of the season just hits you for the first time in three years. You're not going to win the Cup. And I know that's an emotion you haven't felt in a very long time. But with that said, there is anyone seriously complaining that there should have been a whistle for two men on the ice last night for Colorado right before Nazem Kadri scored his goal. You are pathetic. I'm sorry, it's pathetic. Because there was zero, zero impact 
of what was supposedly a sixth player on the ice for the Avalanche, who, if you want to make the technicality that both of his skates were on the ice as he's about to hop over the boards, like that's, you're just grasping for straws. You are just then trying to look for any way, and you're being, what you are is being petulant, crying how you got screwed by the refs. It's not the case. It looked to me Nathan McKinnon, who, who was the man in question, skated by, uh, skated to the bench and literally sure had both of his skates on the ice as he's about to literally walk off the ice. He had zero to do with the play, nothing to do you know, with the involvement, and you see it time and time and time again. Like the NHL rule is this, because I looked it up. A line change for it to be legal, for it to be deemed not too many men off the ice, you basically have to give yourself up and be within five feet of the bench skating back to where someone else can jump on and it won't be considered too many men on the ice. That, Nathan McKenna is probably six inches from the bench before he, you know, before Nazem Kadri touches the puck. So anyone trying to claim that the Lightning got screwed yesterday, that too many men on the ice should have been called and the referees missed it, you're a loser. You are an absolute loser because you are just grasping for straws right now and trying to do anything but admit your team is outplayed. Trying to blame anyone but your own squad for coming up short. They were dominant in overtime. Congrats to Colorado. Because you know what? If you want to play that game, the whistle was blown, tuning on the ice. With the way Colorado absolutely controlled overtime, I still think they win it, even if that penalty is called. So congrats to Nazem Kadri. Hey, you talk about a, a roller coaster. A absolute roller coaster postseason for Nazem Kadri. We runs into um, runs into the Blues goalie. Gets heckled, gets screamed at, gets unfortunately just treated horribly by a few, a select few Blues fans. Goes out the next game, scores a hat trick. Later on in the postseason, gets hit on the wrist, has, you know, is out for undisclosed amount of time. We're not sure if he's ever going to come back. He comes back, scores a game winner in overtime. Game four in his first game back in the Stanley Cup final. What a, a run for Nazem Kaju. Congrats to him. But also what's impressive is the Avalanche overcoming adversity without this game. Down 1-0. Right away, 30 seconds in, the Lightning score. You know, you're up 2-0, you're dominating the series, you're feeling good. All of a sudden, the Lightning flipped the script in game number three. They blow you out. And then now, game four, 30 seconds in, Lightning score, go up 1-0, the, the arena's going nuts. It's very easy to be like, uh-oh, here we go again. We saw this in the Rangers series in the Eastern Conference Finals where the Rangers looked like they were going to cruise to the cup. And instead, game three flipped, and all of a sudden, game four, the Lightning took, uh, took a stranglehold of the series and never looked back. So you score, you're, you know... You're down 1-0 right away before you even blink. You're down 2-1 later in the game. Credit to the Avalanche for, again, never kind of succumbing to the pressure. When you're facing the two-time defending champs, it is so hard. Sure, you, you talk about how hard it is to win two in a row and three in a row, and obviously, we haven't seen it happen in almost 40 years. Teams winning three cups in a row. So, the Lightning are trying to do something that hasn't been accomplished very often in any sport, really, but especially in hockey. But it is as hard as it is to repeat as champs, or how hard it is to win two or three in a row. It's also equally as hard to eliminate the defending champs. They know what it takes to win and get over the hump. No one panics because you've been in this situation before and you have that confidence of, hey, we've been here, we've climbed the mountain, nothing can phase us. So even though you're down 2-0 if you're Tampa Bay and you're feeling good about Colorado, that one game in game number three should have kind of flipped the script and said, oh, this is not just going to be a walkover series. So it, you could have came to the pressure. If you're Colorado uh, in this game, but credit to them, they kept on showing resilience and they kept on bouncing back, tied the game at 1-1, tied the game at 2-2, and again, just completely, completely dominated overtime on their way to their big game for victory. Now they're up 3-1, they're going to win the Cup. 
Congrats, Colorado. Big game for a vic- uh, big game for a win. No controversy though on the game winner by Nazem Kadri. There's come, relax. Let's let's pump the brakes here when it comes to too many men on the ice. You are reaching big time. How about a little baseball? Let's talk a little baseball here. Because I'll be honest, this is a rare we are seeing something that never really happens in any sport. If you are the New York Yankees, if you are Hal Steinbrenner, the owner of the New York Yankees, if you are Brian Cashman, the GM of the Yankees, I think there's a small part of you that is rooting against Aaron Judge, that is hoping to see Aaron Judge cool off. Because right now, the tear that Judge is on, the way he is playing, he is pricing himself off of the Yankees. He is hitting his way off of the Yankees and into a massive deal from someone else's offseason. Two more home runs hit by Aaron Judge on Wednesday. He now has a league-leading 27 home runs. Not even halfway through the season. He's at 27. I mean, he can get to 55. I mean, if the pace continues, we're talking about a 60-home run season. Aaron Judge, and he's going to be a free agent after this year. And last time is special as well because we mentioned two more home runs. This is now the sixth time this season. And the Yankees have only played 69 games overall, and Aaron Judge has not played in all of them. Only the sixth, or I should say, the, already the sixth time. Aaron Judge has had a multi-homer game. That ties Babe Ruth, the only other player in Yankee history to have six multi-home run games before the Yankees have played 70 games in a season. It's just him. And the babe. Pretty good company to be in. So now, if you are the Yankees who couldn't come to an agreement with Judge before the season, who reportedly gave Aaron Judge an eight-year, $30.5 million contract extension offer that was rejected by a judge because he thought, I'm well deserving of getting more. So the Yankees cheaped out, whether it was the you know adding an extra year, whether it was giving them extra 30 mil, there's some, some finagling going on. Aaron Judge said, screw you guys, I'm betting on myself. And right now, if the Yankees were not willing to give Aaron Judge more than an eight-year, added up to about $250 million contract extension, if my math is correct, before the season, oh boy, are they going to be able to afford what Aaron Judge is going to ask for this offseason, assuming this pace that he's been on continues? That's why I'm saying, if you're if you're Brian Cashman, the GM, if you're Hal Steinbrenner, the owner, I think there's a small part of you that is rooting for Aaron Judge to cool off. You want the Yankees to continue to win? Absolutely. But maybe hope maybe John Carlston takes some of the load off of Judge. Maybe DJ LeMayhew or Glaber Torres or anyone. But Aaron Judge continues to produce. The guy's hitting over 300 for the season. Aaron Judge has had a tremendous year. I'll be honest. I could have been more wrong. I thought Aaron Judge made a mistake in turning down that money for his age before the year. And he's making me my words. I think he's making Hal Steinbrenner sweat and Brian Cashin sweat. He is going to get paid after this season. And for once, it seems, it's not going to be from the Yankees. The Yankees are going to get priced out by one of their own guys. Aaron Judge, props to you, man. And again, if you must feel like you are... Uh, you know, talk about, I should say basically a dichotomy of feelings here if you're the Yankees. On one hand, you love the winning. You, they're on a historic pace right now, shredding through, uh, you know, records. 51 wins already in 69 games. But at the same time, it's like, eh, Aaron Judge, you really wanted to be playing that well? Because that price tag goes up and up and up. Small market Yankees, they're in trouble. They're in legitimate trouble for re-signing their best player right now in Aaron Judge. Speaking of trouble, let's finish quick hits with this. 
I think the PGA Tour is in trouble. Like, I don't think this is hyperbole. The PGA Tour is in trouble because the Live Tour is a real threat to the PGA. And here's an idea that I'm going to float out here. I think it might be the best option for both. I think a partnership might be the only way to go moving forward. Again, you want to say that's absurd, ridiculous, they'll never do it. If you're the PGA Tour, you realize and you heard Jay Monahan, president of PGA, come out and admit yesterday. If it's going to be a money game, if it's going to be get to a point where basically money is going to determine which golfers stay, which golfers go, the PGA Tour cannot compete monetarily with the Lyft Tour. The Saudi banks have too much money. They're willing to spend, 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 spend. No one's even sure if they're willing to make a profit if they're looking to make a profit. So if you have a bank with endless, 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 endless funnels, bags of cash, and you are really not looking, at least at the moment, to make a profit from it and have instead an ulterior motive, the PGA Tour is not going to be able to keep everyone. And it's going to do some real damage to the tour field because I think more and more players are going to go. And if you think about it too, we're already starting to see some of the pushback getting minimized. Like Phil Mickelson by far is a lightning rod, right? He is by far the pariah, if you will, of someone who is, is just getting absolutely blasted by the media, someone who is the, you know, the, the face of Live for all the scrutiny. And now we see the latest big-name golfer in Brooks Kepka going, right? And the biggest reason why Brooks Kepka at this point is getting criticism, it's not because he's selling out for the money. It's basically because he lied about it. Last week at the U.S. Open saying, basically, stop casting a black cloud over the U.S. Open by asking about Liv. I just want to focus on the Open. And then a few days later, goes to join Liv. And if he just denied it, if he was just upfront saying, you know what? Yeah, I'm going to take the money. I'm going to go. I don't think the criticism of Brooks Kepka is all that strong and all that rampant. So now, as it becomes almost more normalized, as you see more and more players go, I think the scrutiny for each player that decides to leave the tour to go to the lift tour gets less and less and less. And that is a real problem for the PGA because, again, they cannot keep up monetarily. They're starting to make changes, which, you know what, I commend for, for effort, A for effort, where they're going to start putting in a few of these no-cut, big-time purse, everyone gets a payday sort of competitions that the lift tour is basically funding their, or, or basically having their entire format be. But the temptation for the golfers is always going to be there when you see players that are even worse than you, if you're some of the best, getting paid a big-time payday to go to live. The temptation is always going to be there. The money is always going to be there. And again, as the scrutiny minimizes, as less and less players will get ridiculed for going to join live. I think the more tempting it is to jump ship and go to PGA, uh, go from the PGA to live. And that is why I think a partnership could be in the PGA Tour's best interest. Money and some factor, one way or another, is always going to be some sort of impact or have an impact. So you're the PGA Tour and you realize you cannot compete monetarily. Maybe having a partnership and having it be in the format of, let's say, baseball. Or baseball, right? They have two leagues. The AL and the NL. And for the longest time, there's different rules for the AL and the AL. Uh, for the AL and the NL. What if you're golf and you say, you know what? We're going to have the Live Tour. We're going to have the PGA Tour. Sometimes you'll play against each other. Like in PGA Tour fields, we'll have, like for example, this weekend, you'll still have the Travelers where only PGA Tour players can play in the Travelers. And you're going to have Live uh, tournaments where only players on the Live Tour can compete. But I think, what about crossover events? What if you have PGA versus Live? 
Whether you have match play one-on-one. Whether you have tournaments that have both PGA and Lyft players playing alongside of each other like you're going to see in the majors. I, I do think that's not a bad option for the PGA Tour going forward. It's something you have to absolutely have to consider. Having a format similar to, let's say, baseball, AL, and the NL, where most of the time you play you know, your own league, but here and there you'll have interleague tournaments, interleague matchups. I think it's something PGA Tour has to seriously consider because if you're not going to be able to keep up monetarily, there's not going to be then a lot moving forward to keep players on the PGA Tour and saying no to live. The temptation is only going to grow. The scrutiny is only going to be reduced. And it's going to be harder and harder to justify staying on the PGA Tour and not joining a Lyft Tour where, sure, their morals are, you know, well, to put it lightly, extremely questionable at best. But the money speaks for itself. So PGA Tour, I think, is in real trouble here. They're in real trouble because now you're starting to see Liv make some real inroads and getting some big-time players, and that to me is only going to increase and only going to continue. I think a partnership is something the PGA Tour seriously has to consider moving forward. When we return here on the Ryan Hickey Show, I want to talk about Kevin Durant and what I think is an unfair double standard that Kevin Durant is being held to, that no other superstar in the NBA is being held to. Explain what that double standard is when we return. This is the Ryan Hickey Show on Worldwide Sports Radio Network. It's the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show. Right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. All right, it is the 10 o'clock hour Eastern time on the Ryan Hickey Show, which means this hour is sponsored by LC Designs. It's summertime and one of the best picnic snacks for any nice day in the park or just hanging out in the backyard is, of course, a great charcuterie board. So make sure you check out Lauren Clark, who designs them herself. They're both delicious and aesthetically pleasing. So make sure you check out lcdesignsnyc.com, lcdesignsnyc.com. Dot com for more information. All right. Kevin Durant, I think, is held to a different standard than every other star player in the NBA. And I don't really get why. It makes no sense. But I think one thing we can all agree upon is that there is a double standard for Kevin Durant compared to every other star in the NBA. Because the biggest thing he gets knocked for, right, is his inability to win a ring on his own having to go join Golden State and the two rings they won with the Warriors basically don't count. That's right, the, the common perception. And and uh, for Kevin Durant, when it comes to you know his championships viewed to everyone else's. But here's the thing, when we talk about double standard, that to me doesn't make any sense. No star has won a title on their own. Why are we criticizing, why are we punishing Kevin Durant for not winning a title on his own when literally... Every other star in the NBA needed help in order to win a championship. Like, no one else gets dragged for their rings more than Kevin Durant. And you have guys, of course, like Charles Barkley, that have been the most critical, saying, oh, he's not a bus driver. He's got to, you know, he's got to, you know, win a ring on his own, win a real ring. You know, he got the easy way out. He was on Get Up on ESPN earlier last week. And this is what he was saying about Kevin Durant's legacy. Take a listen. Before KD. 
Uh-oh. Hold on. Let's try that again. Charles Barkley, come on. Tell my Kevin Durant on Get Up on ESPN. Here we go. Take two. Oh, come on. You got to be. This is why technology, man. This gets that great respect from all the old heads. He's going to have to win a championship as a guy, as a bus driver. Listen, he joined this, uh, that team had already won a championship, so no disrespect. That's just a fact. But until he is the guy on a championship team, we're not going to ever give him the respect, I mean, that he probably deserves. And that's just the way it is. And like I say, the, the game hasn't changed. Kobe said it. LeBron said it. And so we're going to hold him to the same high standard before KD... All right, so Charles Buckley's saying a lot of things there. Number one, right, he he throws that term out there here that he has been loved to have been saying this this postseason. KD has to be the bus driver. He's you know he joined a, a team that won a title before, so it doesn't really count the two rings that he has. And you know the the standard that LeBron and Kobe have said we got to hold KD to the same standard of of Kobe and LeBron, etc. Charles Buckley right there is basically punishing Kevin Durant. Is is he never wins another ring? If he never wins a ring on his own, he is not going to have the legacy he deserves. But let me ask you this. If we are punishing Kevin Durant, if Kevin Durant is basically getting viewed as someone who has not won a title on his own, why aren't we punishing LeBron James, Kobe Bryant, oh, excuse me, Steph Curry, Michael Jordan? Like, honestly, what, please tell me, what star has dragged his team to a championship? You look back at history, not many have. LeBron James. LeBron James in Cleveland. Couldn't he dragged the Cavs to the finals, unable to get them over the hump uh, and win a title. So what did he do? He went to Miami, teamed up with Dwayne Wade, who won a title a few years before, teamed up with Chris Bosch. And those four, or I should say, excuse me, those three went to four titles in a row, one, two. LeBron had to ditch Cleveland in order to go win a championship. Then when he came back to Cleveland and won a title, he still had two great players around him in Kevin Love and Kyrie Irving. Kyrie Irving hit the shot that eventually won Game 7. LeBron was great. I'm not trying to say that he you know, marginalized or minimized what LeBron James did. But LeBron needed help from Kyrie in order to take down the Warriors and needed Kyrie to hit one of the biggest shots in NBA history in order to win Game 7, in order to win the Finals. Then, he goes to LA. He could not win until... Anthony Davis came to town. He needed, on paper, when he's healthy, a top 10 player in the NBA to win another title. LeBron James, everywhere he has gone, has needed help, has needed some sort of big-time player, needed a star player to come to his aid in order to win a title. Steph Curry had Klay Thompson by his side with the first title, who Klay Thompson is going to go down as one of the all-time greatest shooters in NBA history, Draymond Green's going to go into the Hall of Fame. Maybe, uh, maybe Andre Iguodala, we'll see. But at bare minimum, bare minimum, Steph Curry had two Hall of Famers on his team, the two titles they won without KD, and obviously when KD's there, it's a cheat code. But Steph Curry didn't win a title on his own. Steph Curry didn't drag the Warriors to any of the four rings. You can make the argument this latest uh, run was the closest he got to it. But he still needed help. Hell, Ch- uh, Shaq and Kobe. Kobe needed Shaq. Shaq needed Kobe. Like, why are we putting this narrative out there about Kevin Durant specifically and only? That, oh, 
His titles don't count because he needed help. Yeah, every star needs help. LeBron James needed help. Do we forget about the decision? Do we forget that he needed to leave in order to win titles and, and go team up with players that were still, you know, some of the best in the league? Did we forget that Seth Curry had Hall of Famers, at least two Hall of Famers with a Hall of Fame coach, mind you as well, coach of the team? Like, not taking anything away from Steph. Steph needed help. Kobe needed help. Hell, Michael Jordan, call for what it is, did not win a title without Scottie Pippen. Scottie Pippen is arguably one of the best, you know, 1A players in NBA history. You can look up and down the list. No one else gets punished for needing help to win a championship other than Kevin Durant. And why is Kevin Durant the only player that continually gets railed, gets continually gets, you know, jabs thrown his way about not winning a title or needing help to win a title when literally, literally, every other star in the NBA needed help in order to win a title? What are we doing? Like, what are we truly doing? Can we please see the hypocrisy here that makes no sense when you have guys like Charles Barkley criticizing Kevin Durant and the same breath praising LeBron James? They basically went about things the same way. Sure, you can criticize Kevin Durant for blowing a 3-1 lead, joining a team that won 73 games. How is it really all that different than LeBron James going to Miami who already had a good culture built up there, who already just won a title a few years ago in 06 with Shaq and, and, and Dwayne Wade, and he brought Chris Bosh along to form the big three. How are we just going to pretend like one is different than the other? It's not. They are one and the same. They are one and the same. Now look, does Kevin would winning a third ring, especially in Brooklyn, be great for Kevin Durant's legacy? It would. But part of the reason why is because you have people, you have Charles Barkley, you have analysts, that continually hold Kevin Durant to a double standard that, to me, makes no sense. I think the biggest thing you criticize right now Kevin Durant for is his decision-making, is his judgment in thinking and leaving Golden State that Kyrie Irving would be the guy to get him another title, in thinking and believing that James Harden, trading for him, having a big three with Harden, Kyrie, and, and KD, would work out. That's where Kevin Durant should get more criticism for trusting Kyrie. For now, reportedly, going to ask for a trade from the Nets if they don't re-sign Kyrie. That is where criticism for Kevin Durant should come down. Not the fact that he needed help to go to Golden State to win two titles. It was a Chico, don't get me wrong, and he took the cheap way out and it's a bad look. But at the same time, every other star right now in the NBA that needed to win a title recently, you know, did so with help. Like, honestly, even the like even teams that built it the right way, the Spurs had great players on their team all throughout the Hall of Fame coach of Greg Popovich. Like, you look around. The, the Raptors, you can make the argument, maybe uh, Kawhi Leonard is the closest comparison you can make or the closest argument you can make for dragging a team to the finals by himself. Now, he, he took Toronto that perpetually lost in the first round, who would be a great, great Regular season team that always lose and lay an egg in the postseason. And he took them to the finals and won it. But are we going to truly sit here? Are we going to truly sit here and say if the Warriors are healthy, the Raptors are beating them? My answer is no. They needed Kevin Durant to go down uh, and miss, you know, and, and get her and pop his Achilles. They needed Klay Thompson, who was having a tremendous game number six, to tear his ACL. And that's how the Raptors were able to win the title. 
Are we taking the title away from Kawhi? No. But Kawhi Leonard, you made the argument, and maybe even Giannis the year after, are the two players where you could have the best argument for dragging their team to the finals themselves. But again, Giannis needed help with the Nets being banged up, and Kevin Durant, the guy we're talking about, almost dragging, being inches away from sending the Nets past the Bucks. Bucks needed help, they got it. Raptors needed help, they got it. And every other star player that's won a title has needed help at some point along the way. Whether it was just tremendous team building like the Warriors, where you're able to draft a guy like Klay Thompson, or able to draft and develop a guy like Draymond Green, have a Hall of Fame coach in Steve Kerr, and have everything come together, to where even though Steph is by far the best player on that team, you have two other Hall of Famers around him to help form one of the best dynasties in the NBA. Whether it's LeBron James going to Miami, coming back to Cleveland, going to L.A., and all different points of, of that venture needing help, needing some other star players to come in to take pressure off him, to pick him up when he's down. No players in the NBA are dragging a team to a championship by themselves. So why are we punishing Kevin Durant for not winning a quote-unquote real ring when everyone else, every other champion, you can make the argument they needed help, they took the cheap way out. Like, if we are, if we are truly sitting here and saying Kevin, Dur- Kevin Durant's rings don't count, then LeBron James' rings shouldn't count. Then I'd argue three out of four Steph Curry rings shouldn't count. And you can make the argument all six of Michael Jordan's rings shouldn't count. Kobe's rings, three of Kobe's rings shouldn't count. Maybe Shaq's rings outside of LA shouldn't count. Like, what do we, if you want to play that game, we can play that game. We can absolutely play that game. I'll go down the list of who needed help, who took the cheap way out, and who didn't win a ring truly on their own. It's such a stupid conversation, and it's such a stupid double standard that only, only Kevin Durant gets held to that no other star player in the NBA gets held to. And I hope now at least I could shine a light on just how stupid the hypocrisy is from guys like Charles Barkley. I love Charles Barkley. He's funny. He, I think he provides some good, uh, good analysis. But the reality is, especially Charles Barkley, because he has been, if you want to use the term he's thrown out there, he has been the bus driver for trying to run over Kevin Durant's career, run over Kevin Durant's legacy when it comes to championships. The ironic part is the invalidation that Charles Barkley, or, or the reasons Charles Barkley uses to invalidate Ka- Katie's two rings, you can apply those reasons to almost every other star player who's won a championship in the NBA. No one anymore, no one, I don't care who you are, is dragging a team to a title by themselves. So why do we continue hold star players to the standard of, did you win a ring on your own? Oh, was it a real ring or was it a fake ring? It's hard to win a championship. Let's remember that. So I think it's, it's absolutely patently absurd that Kevin Durant is getting, uh, his legacy is getting crushed. His legacy is getting um, knocked down because of guys like Charles Barkley and others who are criticizing Kevin Durant for not being able to win on his own. Nonsense. Because no one is winning on their own. So I'm curious your thoughts here. Are you, like, are you, is there a true double standard? Is a double standard absurd? Or in your mind, is Kevin Durant getting proper criticism for not, you know, building a championship roster in his eye. Not being the architect of a super team like LeBron has been. Not, you know, benefiting from a, a franchise that has drafted extremely well, like the Warriors, who have developed their players extremely well. 
in order to have a few Hall of Famers develop alongside you? Is the criticism about Kevin Durant winning two fake rings, is it valid, is it justified, or is he being held to a double standard that no other player in the NBA is being held to? Love to hear your thoughts here on Facebook. Check us out, Worldwide Sports Ray Network. Twitter, at Ryan Hickey Show on Twitter, or YouTube, we're live streaming Worldwide Sports Ray Network. When we return, I think this is truly the beginning of the end for Daniel Snyder as owner of the Commanders for real. And there's one reason why. We'll explain that well, what that reason is when we return. This is to the Ryan Hickey Show on the Worldwide Sports Ray Network. Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show, right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. It's not warm when she's away. Ain't no sunshine when she's gone, and she's always gone too long. Anytime she goes away. All right, Ryan Hickey Show, live with you here. Where else? Worldwide Sports Radio Network. We have retweeted. Now we have let the masses know what we're about to be talking about, which is Daniel Snyder. I do think we are on the precipice of finally seeing Daniel Snyder's reign as owner of the Washington Commanders uh, finally end. I know it's been something we've talked about you know, feels like for forever. We always thought, oh, could this be the final straw? I think we're actually at that point. I think we have never been closer to seeing Daniel Snyder lose the Commanders than right now. Because finally, for the first time, really ever, things have gotten real. I think the subpoena that he's about to be issued from the House Oversight Committee yesterday, I think it's going to be the final straw for the rest of the NFL owners. Because I do think All the BS that's gone before, all the investigations, all of the uh, alleged doings uh, of what a horrible workplace the commanders were, I think now courts, the legal system getting involved changes everything for the owners. And before this, I will say, before this, before this latest procedure, before this latest hearing yesterday, before this latest development of now Daniel Snyder being subpoenaed to testify in a deposition in, you know, on the record, in court. Before that, everything else leading up to that, it made sense why Daniel Snyder was never forced out uh, of ownership. Because you know what he was? He was a human shield for the other, we'll say, 30 owners, because the Packers with the million owners that they have, we won't count them, but if you want to get technical, the other 31 owners. Daniel Snyder was basically a human piñata. He was a dartboard for all criticism that he kind of absorbed and basically kind of allowed the other owners to kind of hide in the shadows. Deflected attention away from their wrongdoings because, oh, wow, look at Daniel Snyder. Something else, another allegation has come about. Oh, man, the Washington Commanders stink again. Oh, that's on Daniel Snyder. And you think about it. Jerry Jones just had an incident where one woman was alleging that he was, Jerry Jones is her father. You had Robert Kraft on hours before the AFC title game against the Chiefs getting rub and tugs at massage parlors. There have been, there are owners, and most if not all, 
have skeletons in their closet one way or another. Whether it's their business doings, whether it's some of their business practices, maybe it's the way they talk to people in the workplace. Maybe it's stuff like Robert Kraft and Jerry Jones fooling around when they shouldn't be. All different skeletons that easily could come to light when you don't have the lightning rod of Daniel Snyder in place. But you don't have the dartboard, if you will, when you don't have the scapegoat of Daniel Snyder taking up everyone else's time. So if you think about it, it was very strategic for the other 31 owners in the NFL to keep Daniel Snyder around because what he did was just distract everyone else from their own doings, from the other owners' doings. Because Daniel Snyder, the laundry list he has, my goodness, he kept everyone busy, and there was always some sort of allegation. There was always some sort of, uh, of blame heading Daniel Snyder's way. So there was a reason. That's the reason why Daniel Snyder's been able to own the Commanders for this long. They don't care about the, the loss of money. I bet you most owners don't even care that he was withholding uh, some ticket revenue from the rest of the owners. Daniel Snyder's being that human shield, I think, was priceless for the other 30 owners, and that's the biggest reason why he was kept and allowed to own the team for this long. But here's where it changes. Here's where, for the first time, it finally changes. When you get courts involved, when you get Congress involved, all of a sudden, things get real. Like, when you have committee chairwoman Carolyn Maloney, when she issues a subpoena for Daniel Snyder to testify, now, all of a sudden... Things get real. Now, all of a sudden, we're looking at jail time. We're looking at, you know, investigations elsewhere. Like beforehand, what came about with Daniel Snyder? What came about was internal investigations that, as we're seeing, were shams to begin with. We're looking at at Daniel Snyder getting fined. And we're looking at bad PR for the commanders and for the league. That's about it. Like, as we've seen, the NFL can survive bad PR. Owners can survive a slap on the wrist, which was a $10 million fine of Daniel Snyder for his toxic workplace environment, his enabling of that, and his participation in that. And we have seen plenty of owners survive internal investigations before. But now, when you're on the stand, under oath, giving you know testimony to where you cannot lie, you will face perjury charges, you can now open a bigger can of worms than anything the NFL ever would have done beforehand. This is where I think it finally gets serious for the first time in the ownership era of Daniel Snyder. Because now, if you're another owner, right? And he, again, Daniel Snyder has been good to you because he has been the guy that everyone is vilifying, all the media, all the fans are blaming. And they're kind of looking at a blind eye and you're kind of hiding in plain sight for some of the things that you're worried about that are coming out. But because people are so busy investigating Daniel Snyder, the commanders are always the one under uh, scrutiny, under investigation. But now, if you're another owner of the NFL, and you maybe, let's say, I don't want to say screwed over Daniel Snyder, but let's say maybe you guys aren't in the, uh, the best of friends. Or maybe you have participated in some events and helped Daniel Snyder out in a way where now if he's asked about it, again, you're going to lie? You're really going to lie and face perjury charges and possibly getting thrown in jail or face even more serious consequences? Like, there's a real chance here. Daniel Snyder could spill the beans. There's a real chance he could, whether it's by accident or on purpose, drag other owners into this. 
Like, this could be a mega, mega disaster for the NFL, and specifically the 32 owners of the NFL. You have by far the least trustworthy owner around. Now having to go to court. Does anyone trust that he's going to do the right thing? I don't think so. Which is why you can't have it. Now, they probably won't vote him out before. Because then if you vote him out and, and take the team away, then Daniel Snyder has truly no reason to hold back anything. I'm sure he will spill the beans if he actually does have to appear at court next week. But if you're an NFL owner, you got to think at what point is it worth it. And now having an owner dragged into court under oath, I think that's where you got to reevaluate and be like, guys, what are we doing here? And what are we doing? What is truly now the benefit? Because all that could happen is us getting in trouble. All that could happen is us now facing real, you know, legal troubles. We're losing businesses, losing the team, going to jail. Like, things are getting real. Now that courts are getting involved. Now that Congress is kind of stepping on in and sniffing around the NFL. And when things get real, that's when decisions get made. When you're messing with other owners' money, when you are threatening their livelihood, when you are threatening the ownership ability of their team, I think that's when, when truly decisions are going to be made and that is what truly motivates owners who take action. So I think now with Daniel Snyder getting subpoenaed, I think this is real. I think we have never seen Daniel Snyder being closer to losing the commanders than we have right now because again, all the benefits of keeping Snyder as the owner if you are another owner, uh, any of the other 31 owners, all of the benefits of him deflecting blame, him being you know the center of attention, him kind of keeping you in the shadows. I think all that goes out the window when we're talking about court. We're talking about under oath. We're talking about possible jail time. That is where this conversation changes, and that is where and why I think, for all the discussions, all of the reasons, sane reasons, obvious reasons, Common sense reasons why Daniel Snyder should have zero involvement with the NFL, why he should never be allowed to own a team or even any of the businesses that he runs uh, right now for how just how bad of a person he is, how bad of a guy he is. Now, I hate to say it, owners think will start to take this actually seriously because now for the first time, it threatens their real livelihood. So it's going to take 24 to 32 owners to vote, yes, get him out. You know, Daniel Snyder is not going to be voting for himself to give up the team. So it's going to take 24 to 31. I think we'll have plenty of owners saying, you know what? Now that jail time, you know, or now that the Congress is getting involved, this is too much. I'm not risking it. I think we are truly seeing now what could be the the beginning of the end for Daniel Snyder uh, in Washington as owner of the Commanders. So curious your thoughts here. Are you with me? Is this truly now the thought that if you are an NBA owner, there is real concern that things are getting real and you said, you know what? He was a shield for us before. Now it's now it's over. Now we got to, you know, get rid of him a, a, and move on. I think yes, how about yourself? Facebook Worldwide Sports or now you can tweet me on Twitter at Ryan Hickey Show. And you can we could chat about it on YouTube, comment in the YouTube section. Worldwide Sports right now because where you can find the live stream of the show on YouTube. Later tonight, it is the NBA Draft Night. I know not as hyped as the NFL Draft, but Woj put out a very interesting tweet about an hour or so ago that basically the top three picks of the NBA Draft are finalized. You have the Magic picking one, 
Oklahoma City picking two, and the Rockets picking three. According to Woj, top three picks are basically cemented. He has Jabari Smith out of Auburn going to Orlando, Chet Holmgren going two to the Thunder, and Paolo Bancaro going three to the Rockets. So, according to Woj, we're going to have Jabari Smith one, Chet Holmgren two, Paolo Bancaro three. I like Jabari Smith as, as a pro prospect. Watch him a lot of Auburn this year. Tall, lanky, rangy uh, shooter can hit, then, you know, knock down the shots. He, he can shoot from anywhere. Chet Holmgren is a guy that I think I'm, I'm most intrigued by. I think he is by far the most intriguing prospect in this draft because he's super talented. He's extremely tall, but that weight, I think, is going to be. I, it's very interesting to see how he's going to um, play and react to the size and the strength in the NBA. The guy's a string bean. I got to look up his. I mean, he is weighing less than 200 pounds. And so for Chet Holmgren to be as tall as he is, being over seven foot, and to weigh, wow, 190 pounds, a seven foot, I weigh for scale about 165. For Chet Holmgren, who is a foot and an inch, being 5'11", taller than me, only having 25 more pounds on me is frightening. And you see why NBA teams... That's the biggest knock. That's the biggest question mark when it comes to Chet Holmgren. How is he going to play with his weight being so minimal? Where he is, frankly, frail. You're going to have to bang bodies. You're going to have to be physical down low. That's the guy I think I'm most intrigued by because I truly don't know how his game is going to translate. We've seen guys who are thin and tall like Kristaps Porzingis basically kind of move out to the three-point line. Chris Porzingis now is not really a big-time threat down low. There's a reason why Dwight Powell would be the center for the Mavericks when back when Porzingis was on the Mavericks. And even with the Knicks, when he first started out, sure, he would start down low, and especially the first year or so, uh, was like the center for the Knicks. But then eventually, we saw his game start to space out more and more. He started becoming more comfortable and taking more threes. And now, almost, I don't want to say became a, a spot-up shooter, but that's where a lot of his shots on the Mavericks came was from outside the arc. Credit card even hit it. But for someone of his size, his frail uh, weight and stature forced him out of the paint and pushed him back towards the three-point line. I think it's that's going to happen with Chet. I'm interested to see how his low frame, small frame, being just 190 pounds and seven feet, is going to translate over to the NFLs. We have sirens honking down the street here. So here's what we'll do. We'll take a quick break. We'll reset when we return. Baker Mayfield to the Seahawks. Is that truly the best move for Seattle? We'll discuss that when we return us to the Reineke Show on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. It's the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. And welcome back into the Ryan Hickey Show. All right. So if we go back to last season, right? We're going to take a, a quick step back here before we, we move forward and, and talk about the future. If we go back to 2021, the end of that season. I really thought the Seahawks should have moved out from Pete Carroll. I thought at this point, this was going to be the perfect way for Seattle to end their current era and kind of usher in a new one. All right, so whether you want to fire Pete Carroll for your Seattle, whether you want to let him go, put it kindly, whether you want to elevate him and put him in a new front office situation or kind of force him into retirement, 
I thought Seattle should have moved on because it was the perfect way to end what was an extremely successful era in Seattle when you had Russell Wilson and Pete Carroll go to two Super Bowls and win one. But with, with Russell Wilson inevitably about to ask his way out, with the game passing Pete Carroll by, I thought it was the perfect excuse to kind of hit the reset button in Seattle. But as we know, Seahawks did not do that. Pete Carroll is still there. And now that he's still there, I think he's ruining the future of the Seahawks because he is trying to, for me, what I think, take a short-term play, go for short-term success in trying to trade for Baker Mayfield instead of looking at the long view of losing as many games as possible this year and drafting what could be a franchise-changing quarterback in the top five um, picks next year in what is supposed to be a very deep and talented quarterback draft. So the report yesterday, the reason why we're talking about Pete Carroll ruining the future of the Seahawks is because yesterday, CBS Sports NFL insider Josina Anderson put out a tweet saying the Seahawks have a high level of interest in acquiring Baker Mayfield. Not only do they have a high level of interest in acquiring Baker Mayfield, they are also open to giving him a contract extension. They're going to trade for him. They're going to extend him. This is a Pete Carroll move 100%. He wants to win no matter what. And for me, winning is going to go to the detriment of the Seahawks. Now look, I'll be honest. I'm not the biggest tanking advocate. I think more times than not, tanking does not work in the NFL. You try to lose, 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 lose. You put so much pressure on drafting one guy to change your franchise around. And I think it's really hard to... Tell your group of players, lose one year, lose, 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 and all of a sudden turn it around and become a winning franchise yet again. I think it's very tough. I think it's easier said than done. With that said, though, I think certain situations, certain circumstances say the best thing for us this year is to lose as many games as possible. And for me, the Seahawks fall in that category where for 2022, I thought their best way of getting back on the successful track is by losing 12 13, 14, 15 games this year, getting a top five pick and drafting what could be CJ Stroud, Bryce Young, or whoever, you know, whatever the quarterback uh, blossoms in this year's college football season to turn your team around and give yourself a, a chance going forward. But instead, for me, what I think is the right move, Pete Cow disagrees with because instead he is someone that wants to win no matter what. He is looking for a short-term success. When in reality, the long-term play, the better move for the Seahawks is losing, tanking, and getting a quarterback. Like, look, that is not in the cards for a 71-year-old or soon-to-be 71-year-old coach. And that is why the Seahawks are at fault for keeping Pete Cal around. And that is why he is ruining the future. You have the short-term wants of Pete Carroll superseding what truly is what is best for the organization. If you are John Schneider, all right, the GM of the Seahawks. I understand that right now the ownership situation is a little wonky. You have to have the long-term view and the short-term view set for Seattle. The short-term view is very easy to uh, look at and say, you know what, we're not going to be very good. Even if you get Baker Mayfield, this team is not going to the playoffs. Even if you get Baker Mayfield, this team is not going to be one that's going to compete a lot. Like, Look at the rest of this roster. This roster stinks. This roster is not very good. You have DK Metcalf. You have Tyler Lockett. Congratulations. You really got nothing else. The offensive line, questionable. Sketchy. Running back, you drafted Kenneth Walker. Great running back at Michigan State. 
for Pete Carroll, though, wanting to run the ball and having an offense that is dictated, and that is predicated, I should say, on running the football, playing good defense, I don't trust the running game, and I certainly don't trust the defense. You have Jamal Adams, who's the most overrated, overpaid player in the NFL. You struggle again after the quarterback. Linebacker uh, took a hit with your all-time great linebacker, Bobby Wagner, leaving to go to your division rival in the Rams. So the two areas in which the Seahawks are, are built and, and the foundation of how Carr wants to win games, running the ball and playing good defense, you can't do. And I don't see how Baker Mayfield coming to town is going to change the fortunes for Seattle and turn them what, for me right now, is a top five pick when you have Drew Locke and uh, Geno Smith running the team at quarterback compared to Baker Mayfield. Like, sure, maybe you win two extra games. Maybe instead of 3-14, and 14, you're 5-12. and 12. Or you're 6-11. But what does that truly get you? What does that truly get you moving forward for your Seattle? It gets you nothing. It gets you out of contention for getting one of the best quarterbacks in the draft. There's going to be a lot of quarterback needy teams in next year's draft. you got to saddle up and you got to get as high in the draft as possible because not many teams are trading down. Outside of maybe Jacksonville, if they're in the top five again, I don't see another team in the top five that's going to be there and not take a quarterback. So even though you have two first-round picks, it's not that easy to get back in the top five if you're out of the top five. You're sitting at the eighth pick because you went 6-11. and 11. So that's why I don't see the benefit of trading for Baker Mayfield. Now look, I'm a Baker fan. I think Baker can have success. I think he's a, still a very good quarterback in, the, in this league, and I think he's getting unfairly, his accomplishments rates are getting unfairly diminished for how 2021 uh, went. I think for me, 2021 was more of a product of injuries for Baker than it was him being a a bad quarterback. Let's not forget, the Cleveland Browns, one of the most dysfunctional, if not the most dysfunctional team in the NFL. Baker helped take them and win a playoff game for the first time in 26 years. We can't pretend like this guy is one of the worst quarterbacks in the NFL. We can't. With that said, I don't even, for how high I'm on Baker Mayfield, I don't think he's having success in Seattle. I don't think he's coming to Seattle and, and turning that culture, turning that franchise around and making them a playoff team. So if you are the Seahawks, what benefit does it give you to winning six or seven games? Like what truly is the benefit there? I don't see one. So if you're Pete Carroll, you should be motivated to lose, 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 lose. But when you're 71, hate to be this, you know, dark, you don't got a lot of time left. Even though Pete Carroll is very lively at 71, soon to be 71, just, the clock is ticking. So he doesn't have time to tank in 2022 and do what's best for the franchise, which is why the Seahawks made a major mistake in keeping a 70-year-old team with a terrible roster around. This is all on John Schneider. This is all on the Seahawks organization for empowering Pete Carroll to run the organization, and for me, he's running it into the ground. There is no benefit for the Seahawks. There is zero benefit of trading for Baker Mayfield. This roster stinks. Baker Mayfield is not making you a playoff team. All he is doing is dragging you further and further and further away from a top five pick, and that is going to ruin the Seahawks getting their franchise guy in next year's draft that could take this team back to the top. And instead, they are toiling in the middle. By far the worst place to be in sports. That is where Pete Carroll is steering this team right to the middle. And that is why he is ruining the future of the Seahawks. Tanking in 2022 is by far the best option for Seattle 
for them to get back on top. Tank, lose, lose 12, 13, 14, 15 games. Get Bryce uh, Bryce Young, get C.J. Stroud, and have a quarterback that gives you a chance to turn this organization around. But instead, Pete Carroll says, no, I want to win now, and that's why the Seahawks, according to Josiah Anderson, are not only interested in training for Baker Mayfield, but extending him as well. Pete Carroll is ruining the future of Seattle. And for me, even though I'm high in Baker Mayfield, that's exactly what this trade would do. If I'm a Seahawks fan, it would give me no hope. It would give me no hope to trade and extend for Baker Mayfield because I, for how good I think he is, and this roster is bad, and it would drag him down. This team is going to be stuck in the middle for a while and be looking for a new quarterback in three or four years anyway. So might as well take your shot at losing as many games with Geno Smith and Drew Locke now and take your shot in the draft next year and hope you hit. That, to me, is the best plan of action, the best course for the Seahawks to get back to their winning ways. Pete Carroll saying, no, I think it's a big mistake. A huge mistake. And this goes to show you why, when you had a chance if you're Seattle, when you should have fired, forced into retirement, elevated Pete Carroll just to get him out of the head coaching job and give it to someone else. Give it to someone with a brain who embraces the way the NFL game is played who is not stuck in the 2000s, who realizes you have to build your team around the quarterback. Instead of playing and hoping to win in spite of your quarterback, you will start to win because of your quarterback. Pete Carroll was scared of Russell Wilson. He was scared Russell Wilson was going to lose them games. He wanted to play conservative on offense, and he thought for whatever reason, Great defense, still wins in 2021. And by the way, Pete, you don't even have a good defense. Forget about it. Great, you don't have a good defense. So Pete Cal, to me, has lost his way. He's steering this franchise in the absolute wrong direction, and the Seahawks are paying the price for not making a move I thought they should have made as soon as 2021 ended. Moving on from Pete, and right now, this latest rumor, this latest report from Jacina Anderson, I think highlights the big mistake the Seahawks made by empowering and keeping Pete Carroll around. This Baker Mayfield trade is not going to do any good for Seattle. You'll win six, seven games. Congratulations. You'll be picking 11th instead of third. You'll be drafting probably an offensive lineman or a receiver instead of drafting a top five quarterback. And you're going to keep Pete Carroll around. And the longer he's around, I think the less success the Seahawks are going to have moving forward. So that'll do it for this edition of the Ryan Hickey Show right here on, on uh, the Worldwide Sports Run. I really do make appreciate you making us a part of your Thursday. We will be back one week from now as we now, in case you missed the announcement before, we are doing just one show a week. Thankfully, been very excited to uh, announce I am hosting a weekly show on CBS Sports Radio every single Saturday morning from 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. So if you like listening to me, uh, don't think Thursday is enough. Every single Saturday morning, 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. Eastern, I'll be live broadcasting on CBS Sports Radio. Give me some thoughts, give me some takes on whatever's going on. Hopefully keeping things a little bit entertaining and keeping you awake. Hopefully that's the goal at that time of the hour as well. So that opportunity uh, has cut back a little bit of the responsibilities here. So that's why there's no more Monday show going forward. We're here just every Thursday. Uh, 9 a.m. to 11 a.m., of course, on the Worldwide Sports Radio. Right so make sure, though, to now and then, we're still putting out a lot of content on social media, so make sure you're following at Ryan Hickey Show on Twitter. 
Check us out on TikTok, Ryan Hickey's show as well. Another peanut butter review is coming very shortly. And make sure you like us on Facebook, uh, the Ryan Hickey show. Nice little show page there as well on Facebook. So have a great weekend. As always, stay safe, stay sane, and we'll talk to you next Thursday right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. It, it, it's the Worldwide Sports Radio Network.